there, Shopamaniacs. You're listening to another episode of the Shop Talk Show podcast, all about front end web design development. I'm Dave Rupert, and with me is Chris Coyer. Hey! Uh, and you know, you know, we have a, a special guest here to talk about software development in a way that I think is kind of near and dear to both Dave and I's heart about, you know, long term projects and I don't know, and working on stuff and refactoring things and getting it all out. We have Paul Campbell here. Hey, Paul. Hello. Hey. Thank you for having me. It's great to be yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for coming out. And Paul, you are a, a developer for and and really co-founder of, is that right, of Tito. Tito. Yes. Yep, absolutely. I got it right, right? Like Tito Jackson? <laughs> I don't know. If... <laughs> yeah, or uh, Tito, Tito vodka. vodka. There you go, Jinx. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know why. I think and Tito... Tito's regist- event registration software, right? It, it, it's and it's everyone loves it. That's what we try to go for. Um, originally, I was going to conferences and people used software that wasn't fast or stress free, and so I felt there ought to be something better, and so I built Tito for my own conferences, and other people used it for theirs. Oh, that's a nice story. So you really, you were, what were you running at the time? The event I started with a buddy of mine was called FunConf. And I'm both very proud and very ashamed of FunConf, as I am of many things that I do. (laughs) Um, But FunConf brought people from all over the web development spectrum to Ireland for a tour around Ireland to talk about the web. And some very interesting people came. And we we had good times and firm friendships were made for years, and we had a lot of fun. One one was in a castle, is that right? Yeah. That so it, it went from in, the first I, year, which was in a moving bus. The talks were in moving buses. <laughs> uh, the second year was in a, a castle. The castle was the castle that Robert Boyle, the fa- uh, father of modern chemistry, was born in, and uh, <laughs> it was rather cool. remarkable. And then the third one was an, on, in an island off the coast of the west coast of Ireland. Yeah, it was a trilogy, and it, it was good that it was just a trilogy. <laughs> so you had to build software to, I don't know, well, you wanted to build some software to make it better, you know, solve scratch an itch or whatever the people say about well, making ar- software. Around the, one of the reasons I started FunConf was that Andy McMillan, who now runs XOXO Fest in Portland, he started Build in Belfast, and he was thinking along the same terms that buying tickets for com- tech conferences was kind of a crappy experience. And so he built his own system as well. So I built mine and then eventually it became a SaaS or that people could use and Andy's was bespoke. But Andy's was amazing because you just went on to build, you said buy a ticket, you paid, and then you had a build ticket. And I was like, everybody needs, every conference in the world should be like this. It should be this stress-free. And so I wanted that for FunConf because the previous year we'd used Eventbrite, and it just didn't really work as well. I mean, there's a lot to talk about development-wise, but just before we get there, it might be nice to uh, like understand all the things that it does so that you know de- our developer brains can start churning as to like what, like what the, you know, behind the scenes, what this thing ne- needs to do. So it's not like what, like what if I wanted to throw a conference like next week and I really had to do it really fast? I might be tempted uh-huh. to be like, uh, well, I have to sell tickets because I, I want pre sales. I need money coming in the door or something. Maybe I'll just make a little jam stacky, whatever, put it on Netlify, whatever, and put a, a put a PayPal, like a buy now button for my tickets on mm. PayPal. Done. 
Kinda. Like you can pay with a credit card, you can pay with a, anything. I've now, I'm now selling tickets. I think that's one of the easiest ways. Like love it or hate it, PayPal sure. like has enabled people to take money online like pretty quickly. So I might be tempted to do that, but I probably find pretty quickly like, oh crap, well, I pro- all, all I have is like a PayPal dashboard then that's like proof of who signed up. Like maybe, yeah. or maybe I maybe it generates emails, and then I guess I'll have to like use a Google spreadsheet or something to like put who paid and and didn't or something in that spreadsheet. Like a real, it's really manual at that point, right? So maybe I'd be like, well, maybe I'll upgrade and I'll use like a Wufu form or something. Because if I at least use a Wufu form, then I can say like, well, I like I, I'm hearing impaired, like so I need a you know like I I, there, I can collect more information about the person. It's not just a button, which PayPal doesn't allow me to customize any of that crap. So now I have a form, but I can attach that form to a payment system. So that kind of works. And maybe I could use like a Wufu report or something to show me who has registered or something. But even that feels like this wasn't designed for this. It was designed to be super generic for any purpose. It's not really for events. So I guess that's where I'm like maybe the progression past. I don't know what the progression past that is, but eventually you end up with something like Tito. Like, why don't I just use software that's like straight up for this? Right. Yeah. I mean, the the a few things come to mind is the like um, invoicing and invoicing for different localities. Um, that becomes quite hard. Invoicing and refunding. You can obviously do it through PayPal or do it through Stripe, but kind of doing it in a way that works together. Particularly if you want to offer some people to pay with their credit card or some people to pay directly with PayPal. Um, then what if you've only got 50 tickets and you've got 1,000 people who want to go? Oh, um, yeah, how do you manage inventory? Bit, yeah, sure. Yeah, that gets a bit tricky quite quite soon. Um, and then there's all these little niggly tiny things. I think ask, asking questions, but asking questions is part of the reason that registering for many events is really frustrating because if it is a form and you have to fill in 50 or 100 pieces of info before you can even pay, your heart is kind of racing like whether you can get a ticket or not. So mm. there are a lot of considerations. And that was one of the things that with, with Tito was just like you click, buy, you click buy a ticket and then you pay for your ticket. And then if there's any more information to be collected, we say we'll collect it after you've confirmed your ticket purchase. Oh, so that was a psychological choice you made. Like, let's just get the ticket bought because there may, sometimes people are racing to buy a ticket. It's not the case for all for all conferences, but some of them are. Certainly something like XOXO, people are just, I, I know they have their whole like weird like lottery system or whatever, but some conferences are so exciting that you want to get in right away. So and then, so so you made the questions happen after you've already guaranteed the ticket. Yeah, so there was two. There was the BuildConf experience, and then the other experience was, I think it was a Ruby conference in the UK where I knew I wanted to go with somebody, but I didn't know who that was going to be. And if I was asked to provide attendee number two information up front, I would have put in, do not know, do not know, do not know. And mm. that kind of would have been a bit junky for the organizer and not convenient for me. So with Tito, we introduced, uh, I don't know yet, <laughs> which still exists. And uh, I think it's just a, a really subtle that's little. That's great. Yeah. And so you can come back later. This reminds me of like, I finally read that book, Jobs to be Done or whatever, that philosophy that's like, you know, try to understand like at a lower level what people are trying to do when they register they're not just trying to cough up a credit card to you they are but there's other things they're thinking about who they're going with you know what their anxiety level is before buying things stuff like that 
And I thought that was really important that like I want I don't want to buy a ticket, but I don't know who's who it's gonna be. But at some point in the future, I'm gonna add a colleague or a friend or maybe offer the ticket on Twitter or something. Well, so you're the co-founder of this, so you know what I mean, presumably you track stuff like that. Do people use it? Is it a highly used feature? The I don't know yet. Yeah. Well, I only really anecdotally. That's another thing, is like we're we're not big on data analysis and we kind of leave the data because um, we we don't really consider the the data ours to mine in that way. I don't know if you want to go there in this conversation, but um, well, I'm always fascinated in stuff like that. Like for I think in the in my early, I have a variety of experiences. Early software things were like we're just building something. We don't have time to screw around with how many what percentage of the population of the users of this app clicked this button or not. We just know that button needs to be there because I want it yeah. to be there and it's fundamental to the vision of my software. All the way up until working with some software that's been online for 20 years that makes millions and millions of dollars a, a, a month and everything is tracked down to the line. And I didn't blame, I don't blame either scenario. I, I like both, I think both of them have valid scenarios. And now now I work for a company in the middle of that where it's like, where it's trying to be a little bit smarter about stuff because if 0.03 percentage of people ever work, use a particular feature, we're, and, and it, it tends to cause bugs, th- that feature needs to go. Yeah. It's, you know what I mean? So I don't know. But I, I doubt a little, a little checkbox that says, I'll tell you later, is a significant cause of technical debt for you. But if it was... No, I, I don't think we've adjusted that in like six years. But um, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I have heard from people who are like, "This is amazing. This is exactly what I wanted." Uh, it's usually like a, the, a manager of a software team, and he's got ten folks that he wants to send to a conference, none of which are him. And uh, and he's like, "Yeah, I don't care. I just want to send. I just want to ship the, the the invitations off to people. I'm I approve the purchase, and then I just want to send the tickets off, and they can fill in their details." Uh, and so, okay, so it allows you to make registration for the event, and it takes care of payments for that and stuff like limiting ticket sales. And I don't know who I'm coming with yet, and stuff like that. But it also provides, like, what else does it do? Like for me, who's or you, who's running the conference. I get like nice dashboards and stuff. I imagine can't I use it on the day of the event too to help run it? Yeah, sort of. We could do a lot better there, but we we provide the ability to create lists for checking people in. Um, one of the cool things you can create multiple lists. So if you've got like a pre-party and you've got the main event, you can create separate lists and check people off to those independently to know who sh- showed up for either of those. Um, we we have a messaging tool which is like a lightweight um, mailing list tool that does things like shows your tickets automatically attached to any emails that are sent, which is pretty cool, so that you don't need to go looking for your tickets after you receive a message. Oh um, my gosh. That's, sorry. I just, how many times are you like, I saved this somewhere in my phone, and I flagged it, and Lord knows if I'll find it again. So Yeah, so I think that's really cool. So it's just lots of, the, the philosophy is to build little supporting tools that are simple enough that most people will find them useful. Like our check-in list tool is pretty limited by what it does. It doesn't do on-site printing. It doesn't do this, that, and the other fancy things that maybe more robust check-in things would do. But it it has a cool feature where if you've got a volunteer at your event, you give them the app, uh, they scan a QR code, they get the attendee list, and then you can say, uh, wipe the data after the conference. And so the volunteer comes in, they, ne- they don't have to have a Tito account, they don't have to have any registration, they just get a list, they just tap people off on their phone, and then the next day the the, the data goes away. So it's really simple. 
and it works for most of the kind of customers that we have. Um, but it doesn't do an awful lot more than that. So that's kind of the, the philosophy around all of the supporting features, just to keep them simple enough that they're useful for a lot of people, but um, not crazy. Cool. And it's a pretty straightforward pricing model, too. It's, it's, it's kind of like free to set up and, and, and get going with. And then the minute you start actually selling tickets is when the cost happens. Is that true? I believe it's called metered billing. I learned that recently. Um, mm. And ironically, it's sort of similar to Amazon Web Services. You pay for what you use. Um, and we just take a percentage of the ticket price. Yeah, that's cool. Um, so there's no gateway to, to getting set up and stuff like that. I wonder. That's funny. It makes me think of spam. Do spammers use this thing to set up? <laughs> Do you have to yeah, watch Occasionally for that? there are spammers, yes. We've had to put in a few spam protections, but thankfully yeah. not a whole lot. And that's not an invitation to anybody to try. <laughs> uh, certainly. This episode of Shop Talk Show is brought to you in part by Varianto 25, V-A-R-I-A-N-T-O colon 25 is their name. No colon in the URL, of course, is Varianto25.com. It's so cool. They've had two really like successful Kickstarters, like gifts for developers. They have all kinds of cool stuff. They got, you know, playing cards. You can like learn Git. <laughs> Like on each playing card, they're like functional playing cards, but each card has like something that you should know about Git on it, which is awesome. Mugs and t-shirts, posters, mouse pads, tote bags, stickers, notebooks. They're all just, you know, stuff like swag, but they're nerdy stuff. It's super fun. Like like a like a functional programming poster or like a, a notebook that's got all kinds of languages on the cover up. That's just nerdy looking and kind of fun. There's a mug that says make let not var on it, which I think I might buy actually. <laughs> Put that in my cart right now. Um, oh God, and there's like a hundred mugs on here. It's just cool, you know, just check it out. Maybe it's be a good gift for a developer friend of yours or yourself or your employees or your secret Santa party at work or whatever. If you're looking for developer-focused gifts, this is the perfect place to find them. Uh, uh, and it's great. They have discounts on bulk orders, too, if it really is, like, turns out to be gifts for, like, your whole company or something like that. Free international ship- shipping, to Check out Varianto25.com. Very cool. Okay, so it's been, I mean, what... What was the year one for you? Okay, wow. <laughs> well, it, it has to go back a long way. So, FunConf, the first FunConf was 2010. Um, mm-hmm. And so I started writing code in March 2011. Um, and it was basically a PayPal it was right re- after FunConf. It was after the first one. It was like, after okay. the first one, yeah. It was in between yeah. the, the first two. And the first piece of code was a PayPal redirect that exposed a JSON API endpoint with the purchase details to a redirect page. So you started off on fundconf.com, you click purchase, you got taken to PayPal, then you came back to fundconf.com with a little unique identifier. Mm -hmm. That identifier went off to the the Tito API because there was no UI. (laughs) Um, Pulled the details down and said, thanks Chris, thanks Dave, here's your ticket reference and you're going to fundconf. That was it. Um, it didn't do anything more than that, um, and it stayed but, that way. But for now quite, quite you know time. in a database somewhere who bought a ticket and and whatever. 
That's it was good. literally it was literally in, just in the database. So it was on Heroku, and in order to find out who had bought tickets, I had to go into the console and do a list of tickets. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's better than an email sitting somewhere. Uh, <laughs> cool. So that so I mean it's 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 you know it's medium aged software. You know, I think I think we we share about the same. Um, length of history, Tito and CodePen. Really, that was about when we started building CodePen. Um, so, so, and I, I we're, we're kindred in in that way, and that you know, technology has moved under our feet a little bit, and we need to be re-architecting things and rebuilding things because we are, you know, people use our software now. Believe it or not, you know. So, so it was rail. Like, at what point was it Rails? Pretty soon. Uh, yeah, from from the start. It, that that first piece may have been Sinatra. Or I, I feel like I used Sinatra at some point. Oh, we yeah. did that too. In fact, our <laughs> repo is named our main repo that's never changed, or our second one. Our first one was Sinatra, and the second one is called CPOR, which is Code Pen on Rails. Oh, We're so gosh. proud of moving it to Rails. <laughs> nice. Yeah, that's still um, the name of it. Yeah, but I think it was on Sinatra for maybe five minutes, and then. And then we switched <laughs> to Rails. Yeah. Sinatra has that. I mean. It's very express like, but it definitely it's it's like all the world's optimism that I'm going to be able to maintain all this kind of spaghetti. I feel it's, like I should correct you that Express is Sinatra like. <laughs> oh, I no, I think it's Express is exactly Sinatra in in Node. I pretty I'm pretty sure that's exactly what it was, wasn't it originally? Uh, yeah. 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 This is where I sometimes go off and say, "Oh yeah, the uh the author of Sinatra, he was at FunConf." <laughs> <laughs> That's probably why you had to use it. <laughs> not the uh, not not the HH, not the author of Rails, but uh, yeah, founder of NPM was at at FunConf. Was, was a lot oh, of stuff nice. went down at FunConf. There you go. Th- those were the kinds of people who went. That's that's all I'm bringing those names up to. This was people who people who implemented things and made things and made conferences went to the those events. Uh, it's still Rails, right? Yeah, probably. Yes. So yeah, yeah. and so the, the it's sort of probably a good point to introduce the two problems that. Tito has to solve, and we're still working on Let's solving. Let's do it. High, Two high problems. Yeah, I mean, at a very high level, and one is looking after the organizer and the UI or the dashboard that they view, and the second is the checkout experience or the checkout flow. Um, and so, if you use Stripe, this is like whatever the Stripe dashboard and the, the Stripe checkout JavaScript widget thing. Um, so we need to provide those, and even even now um, the Tito checkout widget that you can embed in your page or that we use when you purchase on ti.to is a Rails app running inside an iframe. So there's sure. obviously there's a there's a progressively enhanced JavaScript flow there, but it's basically a Rails app running inside an iframe. So the the piece of JavaScript that we send over the wire to a third party page is literally just pop up an iframe and load a Rails yeah. app inside there. Sure, sure. Um, and and then the, the the admin dashboard is your stock Rails app, like it's Rails top to bottom with a, a sprinkling of JavaScript on top, um, and probably too much custom stuff. I'll do a, a heck of a lot of conferences have their own website, if not like all of them, and they like it when you check out on their web page, not your web page, right? So that's just such, that's a kind of a fundamental feature of Tito's. They take the registration form and plunk plunk it on your own website. Yeah, and it's it's something that is is tricky enough to do that not enough people do it, 
And so what we're thinking about now is to try and make it even easier than we did we did before um, to be able to do that, to be able to make it seem as if you're not using a third party provider for your mm. ticket experience. And because that's what I that's what like that's what the FunConf thing at the start was. It was like at no point did you ever see Tito in the experience. You were on FunConf, you got went to PayPal, and you were back at FunConf. And that's what the embedded piece is supposed to enable. But I mean, and maybe this is a good thing. But when a Tito widget pops up, you know it's Tito um, if you've seen it before. So um, it's it's sort of like people. Some people prefer the hosted, and some people prefer the widget. But we think that the the ideal is if you're on somebody's conference website and you click purchase it should all happen in there that's kind of that's kind of interesting i worked at at wufu for a long time which was a basically an iframe company mm. you know it's like make a form put it on somebody else's website and it's almost always an iframe but it's javascript it's a piece of javascript that kind of enhances itself into an iframe you know and sure. the idea being that you can have like a paragraph tag or something that says like Please fill out my form with the link to the real form, and then job, you know. So it's you know whatever. If it's in a blog post or something, it'll come across RSS, and the the JavaScript won't run, but there'll still be a link to fill out the form, et cetera, et cetera. You know. Hmm. So yeah. and then the with the JavaScript on the page, especially in 2012 or whatever the heck, it was necessary to like a- adjust the iframe's height and s- characteristics and stuff such that it fit the form nicely. That's still kind of a challenge. Oh, of course, because it wasn't a full screen. Yeah, right. It's just a little chunk on there. Uh, so that that was kind of difficult. That's kind of getting a little bit easier to do, but not too much. iframes are still a pain in the butt. Now at CodePen, we have iframes all over the place. That you know, right. That's what embeds are. So that's fun. But, but you know, it's just it's just what it is with third party sites. Sometimes I'm tempted to someday do the web components thing. It's so cool to see embedded tweets embrace that, where it's like a it's like a sure. you know embeds dash Twitter component. So it's not really an iframe, which is nice because it might help, you know you might be able to inherit some font styles and stuff maybe a little easier than you could in an iframe. Well, that's a perfect segue to the in progress new widget or checkout flow that we've been working on. Is um, it? I was thinking the other way you could do it is just give give somebody the HTML and have it hit an endpoint that's a Tito endpoint and rock it. You yeah. know, that way it's in, a little dangerous like, maybe. Like in PayPal in 2005. Yeah, well, Wufu offered that too. And you know, now there's like UseBasin and I don't know, there's about 12 different startups that have started lately. Like even Netlify has this, like just put a form on your website mm-hmm. and if you make the action attribute of that form, us... We'll accept the data and process it for you. Yeah, it's beautifully simple. But a credit card? Mm, maybe not. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, our widget has a little failsafe where if if it doesn't detect SSL, it will redirect. So, and then we try to get people to to put SSL on their websites. But um, when I was implementing the widget, the third party widget, initially, I decided I wanted to be web components forward compatible in 2013. I'm pretty proud of that, and so. In, in instead 2013. Of like, wow. Yeah, that is. <laughs> you should be proud of that. Yeah. So you just you you obviously you have to put a script tag, and so you put the js.tito script tag, and then you just have a little Tito widget uh, HTML component, and you put that where you want the widget to show up, and I'm, it just worked. It always worked because obviously you could like even then you could fake custom elements, right. um, and and that's what we what has been live on the internet for. The last six years, which I'm pretty proud of, but the new um, the new implementation, I 
my dream is that we won't have to use an iframe at all in most cases. And so we can run the whole checkout experience natively on people's sites. Um, as you say, with credit card forms, that can be tricky. But uh, tools like Stripe Elements somewhat help mitigate the risk there because then just the the piece that accepts the credit card details, that's the only piece that's iframed. And Stripe does all that. So that's oh. kind of what, what's cool. nice about being sort of like a marketplace is that we can often... Off outsource the really hard security pieces to companies who are better f- fitted to do that kind of thing, like Stripe. I mean, th- as a user, I would be uh, interested in using a third party just for that reason. More and more, I'm like, I want to outsource things to companies who are incentivized to make it better for me so that I'll stick around as a customer. Right. For example, we all hear, Apple's got some new login thing. I mean, that is not relevant here, but like Apple Pay all of a sudden existed in the world. So it would be so nice if whatever provider I was using just started accepting it somehow magically without me having to do a hell of a lot. You know, And that's one of the challenges of Tito is like keeping up with things like that, um, as well as building out new features or doing this great rewrite that we're currently doing um, with such a small team size. Yeah, so like we did do Apple Pay because we had the, the whatever it was, the summer between Apple announcing it and it becoming available. So we had a bit of time to implement. But since then, Stripe have implemented tons of European payment methods and uh, just like other ways to pay by direct debit and things like yeah. that. And just we just haven't had the bandwidth to add that to our stuff. It's funny that that responsibility kind of falls down the way too in, in that you also use services that help you implement them. I mean that was the promise of Braintree right is that oh it's PayPal but it's also has this single API and you can accept Bitcoin through it or whatever crap you know and it doesn't matter you don't have to do any work it just works I don't know yeah, if that's absolutely. really true no, and that's that's what that is absolutely one of the benefits of using a service like Tito or all any of these services that we use that you just get functionality that you don't have to implement yourself. Yeah, pretty rad. Okay, so it's a it's a Rails app. Time is ticking on. You're deciding to rewrite this thing because te- whatever technology moves, and you just have to move with it to stay stay sort smart of. Right? We, if we go back to like 2016, I've just had my first kid, and I'm back from paternity leave. And I go and I want to add a feature to the app, or maybe want to kind of spike our new iframe, whatever. And the the there's just so much code, and I'm like, the app should be really simple. There's just so much code, and everything takes so long to do, even in development mode. And I just felt like there's got to be a better way to do this. And that was the the painful decision that we made to to start our reimplementation process <laughs> that has gone on for it's it's still going. So the moment was this feature is too hard to implement. There's technical debt problems or something. And let's, yeah, let's, it was. Yeah. I don't. You know, I don't even know what I was doing. But I was like, this should take me an hour. It should take me half a day, and I'm spending a week on it. What's going on? Half the time, I'm just waiting for the page to reload. <laughs> yeah. yeah, develop. I know that feels. <laughs> <laughs> Working on like a twenty. I mean, it's been a but like a. A really legacy job app. It's it just, it's almost like I don't know. Demoralizing is that the right word? It just it, it, it's like it takes so long to do anything, even just to get click the buttons to get it up and going. It's just like takes hugely demoralizing. Ten minutes, you know. And so you're just like, oh man, hope I don't have to like eat lunch and start this over. Again. Yeah, that's why I I feel like sometimes uh, there's more talking points out there that are like that kind of crap on 
developer experience because developer experience is sometimes thrown out there like I, I you know that's so important for this app and people are like no what matters is user experience like don't make technological choices based on developer experience make them based on user experience and I'm like oh, yeah I get what you're trying to say there don't impart the cost of technology onto the user just because it makes life easier for you and then I'm like but there's a balance you know of mm. course there is you know like I need a good experience too otherwise I can't and won't work on this thing yeah and if you if you're into an app for what was that it was six plus that would have been five years into an app and then you you just take a week and you start a new app and it's completely fresh and there are no models there's no database tables there's no JavaScript cruft and you're on your you you, you start it up and you start saying like is it has this been deployed already on my development environment? Because everything's so fast, you forget what it's like to work on a new app, and you can actually implement yeah. ten features. So you're a day. the co-founder, so you can't leave. But other developers, they can leave. They'll be like, "Oh, <laughs> this is old and sucks. I want to work on something new and fast." Absolutely, and yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I absolutely every day. I just I don't know how we we now have three full time developers working on, it and just their patience. It just it absolutely amazes me, and I, it, I'm humbled by their patience to work on these problems and. And we're, we're maintaining two versions of the app at the moment. For, so you really, like, you went deep here. This is, it's iterative in a way, I'm sure, because everything has to be, right? But, like, but it's kind of like a ground-up thing. Like, tell us about what's, the great rewrite has arrived. I was really inspired by the Rails manifesto that DHH wrote. And we had kind of drifted from doing things the Rails default way. And, uh, I mean, I just love it when uh, reading... Basecamp posts that just it, it's all about extreme productivity with small teams, and I'm also very mindful of that. A lot of the new, the very new technologies are coming from the likes of Google and Facebook, where it's the opposite. It's large teams solving huge problems for massive apps, and so to me, it, it felt very neat that, that this the philosophy that we should be following is the small company doing a lot with very little. So. I I decided to embrace the Rails way from everything just from like the architecture, the controllers of the controllers and models and things like that, just like the within the server side, and then um to use TurboLinks to for the for the snappiness of the UI. Yeah. And then long live TurboLinks, TurboLinks rules. Absolutely. It's it was amazing. And so and it, it sort of culminated at the end of that summer where I had more or less rewritten the UI with just basic navigation for all of our major features. And I sent I deployed it and I sent it to a customer and he said, Wow, did you just re-implement the whole thing in React? Mm. It felt like React. And I was like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, yeah, exactly. It was everything was so snappy. Uh pages that were taking a long time to load on the the legacy system that is still our Live system, um, we're we're loading instantly under this this new thing. That's kind of where the magic ended because, for all intents and purposes, that was just a it was just a prototype. It was just a demo, um, and it didn't it didn't include the really really deep layers of functionality that were the main reason that the legacy app was slow. <laughs> so, I saw this brave new world, and I sort of dove in. Dived in, and, and I, I'm not sh- I'm not necessarily sure if it was for the right reasons. I, I got kind of got caught by the shiny of of something that wasn't necessarily a, a a silver bullet for the kind of thing I was looking for. So some of it was r- like a a, r- a Rails rewrite. That was like let's just clean up here. Let's do things the Rails way. Let's not you know. I, if if that's the case, I I feel you there. I, I don't write 
a hell of a lot of Ruby on Rails, but our team does. And, you know, it was our first really big Rails app. So as the years tick on and you go revisit old code, you're like, oh, gosh, I can't believe we did it this way. Let's, yeah. do, it. Let's do it more the Rails way. You know? Right. And then what I found was that the, the Turbo, the file, so TurboLinks allows you to add your own JavaScript after the page load. And so you can kind of stuff that into a, a file somewhere. But then you start to, the same problems start creeping up as you got it. You've got a section that requires a little bit more. So, do you keep that in the same file, or do you spin off a new file? And then, if you come back to it two months later, can you remember which file it was in? And all of these like little problems started to creep in. And then there's limitations at the edge of what TurboLinks does. For example, we have a three pane, the standard kind of three pane view with the menu and the list and a show. So, I think a master detail. Uh, UI architecture, and I wanted to have it so that if you did a search, the search would would appear in the URL. So that if you shared that URL, the search would would stick in the in the center column, but that the content of the viewer wouldn't change. But if you clicked on things inside the viewer, the search wouldn't change. And I wanted to keep that all while maintaining the integrity of the URL. And with TurboLinks, that was hard, and it was also hard because one of one of the things that the Railsway says is to use this um, onion skin caching. Which means that you can't really put URL modifiers into cached list elements, and it, I was just finding that at, at some point to get this UI that I wanted, I was fighting against the constraints that Rails was bringing to the table. Yeah, you're writing a JavaScript application, but you're using server-side tech to do it and trying to force it into place. M- maybe, like I think TurboLinks really shines when it's not particularly JavaScript-heavy. Uh, otherwise, agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Sort of like I was, I almost feel like I was up at night thinking about this. And it's when you have a TurboLinks app that has zero latency, it is the most amazing thing ever. But if you have any kind of latency, a little progress bar appears, off, appears at the top. And the philosophy that I had written the original Tito app was that if you clicked something, anything, something should happen on the screen immediately. TurboLinks does answer that with the progress bar that appears. But to me, the UI should change if you're clicking into a new section. And TurboLinks doesn't really have a good strategy for changing the UI when you click a link. So if you've got a list and then the list needs to move over and a a show view appears, and you also change the URL, obviously you can do it in plain old JavaScript, but I want the URL to change as well. Um, That TurboLinks doesn't have a good way to manage that. And so... I, th- these were limitations that they were they were fine, and I was like, "Oh, we could ship this, but it's not right." Have you seen all that that portal stuff? It seems like that's going to be like the future of TurboLinks like stuff. Anyway, it's like I'm it's sure. it's like eh, it's like Chrome's it's new thing, multi-page, but it has yeah. like single-page, but it has animation capability built in. So that slidey stuff that TurboLinks makes hard won't be so hard with this. Oh, got it. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, that was another thing. And then the other thing is like we we introduced modals, like edit modals in that in our uh, new UI, and sure. TurboLinks wasn't didn't like that either. <laughs> so we were, I was just running up against these constraints, like uh, on the face of it. If I wasn't pushing the UI design to feel more like a expressive desktop app experience, that then maybe TurboLinks would have been great. And obviously, there are great examples of desktop class experiences that TurboLinks does. TurboLinks is amazing. I feel like it should ship with all WordPress sites. You know, like that's the <laughs> absolutely. 
Um, and <laughs> yeah. there is a word there is a WordPress Turbolinks plugin, but you're right; it should be completely native. That's what's wonderful about Rails is that instead of having a plugin for Turbolinks, whatever it was with Rails fours, everybody got it for free, and it's like and it's really easy to take out. And to me, that was wonderful because suddenly all of these apps became fast instantly overnight with very little overhead for the developers. That's amazing. Turbolinks is amazing. I love it, <laughs> uh, but you but you outgrew it. It's time for, to. I mean, I I think I know what you're going to end up picking here. But you wanted to write basically a JavaScript powered front end, like all like every other website in the world. That's where think. we ended up. So I yeah. there, there was a there were a few bits inside Tito where we required that little bit more stateful interaction within certain sections of the page, um, and my ambition for the UI. In terms of, for example, if you're adding text to a ticket, I want there to be a little live preview of how your how the pricing is going to be affected, and you can write that in jQuery, you can write that in in, in plain JavaScript, in the old way, no problem. But um, this is where I reached for Vue. I don't know where I got Vue from. I I guess I was reading somewhere, or it was on a mailing list I'm subscribed to. Somebody showed me Vue, I think, a couple of years before I reached for it this time, and I was like, oh yeah, that looks nice, and I never looked at it again. So at some point, I just went through the Vue um, tutorial, having looked at React, having looked at Angular, and though gone through the, the, um, the tutorials, and this was I, was, I was coming at it from the point of view, like I had built JavaScript frameworks of my own in the past, and kind of built custom uh, backbone things, so I felt like I wasn't coming at it as a as a JavaScript newbie. But Angular and React just didn't work for how I thought about um, building JavaScript applications. Uh, what, what did you look at? Ember isn't that the one that's most like spiritually connected to Rails? Or I'm not sure. Um, Ember didn't didn't Ember come out of Sprout Core, um, which mm-hmm. was then yeah, that was something. It was, it was at like Apple. Yehuda and Tom Tom Dale. Dale. Yeah, um, but yeah. I, I Ember has is good. Like I know a lot of people are using it um, still, but I think it it was kind of like you have to like fully buy into it. Like you have to like right now you're doing Ember. Kind yeah, of. I mean the the, the Ember is maybe at the time, and I think Ember has gone through a lot of changes since I last used it. But at the time, the magic of Vue was that. Well, let's say in, in, with Ember, you're building an Ember app. The magic of Vue was that I was able to target like a single div and just make that a Vue app. And then I would get all the benefit of Vue in just that one tiny little piece of the page without having to put Vue anywhere else in the app. And to me, that was amazing. And the parallels to jQuery were strong for me because with jQuery, you could just target an element and add functionality to that element. Whereas with Vue, you could just target an element and have that element act like Vue and get all sorts of reactivity and really interesting UI. And it felt so lightweight to me that it was that the pathway to it was so easy. And then and then it sort of grew from there. So where with Ember I felt like I had to learn the whole framework before I could even get started. And I did build a couple of Ember apps and I had moderate success. But with Vue I just kind of I was like, okay, I'd love to be able to I'd love to be able to uh Maybe look at the URL, and it's like, oh, look, Vue Router exists. It's like, oh, I'd love to be able to share share data between two components. I was like, Vue extra exists. All these extra pieces exist, and anytime you Google for how do you do this in Vue, there always seem to be a really good, clean, simple answer. Um, and then the the way that it presents HTML, CSS, and code inside single file components that's mm-hmm. that was then was like, oh my 
word. That's nice. I like it was jaw. Well, that's a good me. enough reason to pick anything, right? I, I feel like a lot. You hear that a lot from view people. Is it just clicks with their brain a little better? And if you feel productive in it right away and whatever, then then why not use it? You know, right? And I've spoken to people who simply cannot stand the look of Ruby code, and. Personally, I don't understand that because it looks very clean and elegant to me, but I totally get it that it's just not going to work for everyone. Ruby code death looks the best. End. Solid. Pretty good. I think that the speed at which you get that joke. I mean, it's it, it'll be 3x by Ruby 3 is what I <laughs> <laughs> So you're still, but you're not really considering replacing Rails. That, for some reason, I do people ever leave Rails? <laughs> are you stuck on Rails for life? Is that? Are you in prison? Are you? Does DHH have you in prison? Please blink twice. If, uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm aware there's tons of options. There's, uh, but I, in in my mind, I've already rewritten the whole thing using Lambda functions. But, well, that's um, the thing, Paul. You totally can. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> we're, that's what we're really excited about is that w- w- never at Codeman do we consider dropping Rails. You're like, why? It does lots of useful stuff and fast and who cares? It's fine. But w- even without us knowing it, little by little, uh, we're slowly replacing the whole damn thing with lambdas. It's incredible. Uh, you know, there must be 40 of them now that we have. And we're all like, oh, and they're all in this like mono repo thing now that we moved to where they can all kind of like share little bits together. And I'm like, dang, we've actually accidentally rewritten the app in Node. Wow. Almost. And are you happy with the local development story? Does that feel solid to you? Well, it does sometimes, you know, depends on what you need it to do and your testing and stuff. But, you know, I, I feel like we're, we took a couple of steps there, but serverless.com, I think, is, uh, I'm afraid to say, the best answer. I don't know why I'm afraid to say it. It's pretty sweet. I just yeah. I wish we kind of found it sooner, but it's kind of the more most robust choice, I think, for uh, for needing to, to spin up, spin it up locally. And Nellify is making some good strides there too with their Netlify dev tool for for testing all your your lambdas locally yeah. and stuff. I put out a I put out a, a a long Twitter. Well, it wasn't that long, but just a rant that and I see this come up on Twitter every so often, but just the uh the local development ecosystem, maybe on a Mac, maybe on on Ubuntu it's better with Docker or whatever, but the like to be a local developer to set things up locally is still really really difficult. Um because like you just say, oh yeah, no, no, it's not. You just install a few commands. It's like, yeah, but to install a few commands, I got to install Homebrew, and to install Homebrew, I got to install this and that, and um, it's getting yeah, better all the time. Fair. But I feel that's like the, the, the story is still. I mean, I mean it depends on what you're writing. If you're just writing a little Node function, I mean, you can kind of just hit it directly without installing anything. But you're right; you really should be testing it in as close to the development version as possible. It's particularly a big deal with lambdas because there's so many limitations for how long right. they can run and where you're allowed to write files to and where you're not and the, the, you know. Yeah, that that timeout part of of lambdas keeps me I don't know, keeps me out of that game because I'm like, what if it's slow and it just bails? Oh, no. Oh, my God, did you see? And this this stuff is really shaking out. You know, like if you haven't yet moved to like literally AWS Lambdas, for one thing, they're not the only player in that game. And the latest player is Cloudflare with their workers, Mm -hmm. which are like, you can run a million a month for free. And then you go over that, and it's like it, you struggle to pay for it. Even with Lambdas, which is like the most expensive choice, it's like our Lambda bill is like $5 a month. It's like insanely cheap. Which is absolutely great, yeah. 
Um, I I don't know where I I stand on it. I mean, the Ruby on Rails is an extraordinary framework, and it has been responsible for pushing many other areas or or parts of the web development, software development folks forward in many ways. Um, And I think that it's all just part of an ecosystem. I think the more ways to do things is a good thing. Um, I think having lots and lots of ways as a newbie is not necessarily a good thing. But um, yeah, to be able to have that level of power without putting a huge amount of cost behind it is is the most amazing thing about Lambdas. Um, but I, I think the future of Rails is pretty solid, and I think the future of Lambdas as a as an architecture is also pretty solid. And that's what's great. It's like for one to win, the other doesn't have to lose. This episode of Shop Talk is brought to you in part by Dot Tech Domains, which I think are very cool. Of course, I'm a big fan of of just picking the right TLD for you. And if your thing is technology focused at all, there's really no downside to having a domain that isn't like .com or .net or something. Why not pick .tech, you know? I think it's uh, very cool. It's not particularly old. Launched in 2015. So so I think the, the chances of you finding like a really nice .tech domain are heck of a lot higher than they would be on anything else. You know, there's all kinds of people using tech domains. You know, CES, that huge technology conference is doing it, Viacom, Intel. and I don't know. There's just lots of big companies that have to totally trust this and go with it. Of course, you buy them on a .tech domain. Just go to go.tech, which is pretty awesome. I know go.tech slash codepen works, and you get 90% off one and five-year domain registrations. So 90% off, pretty significant, too. So... Uh, uh, you might as well go check it out, see if the perfect domain is there for, for you too. I would say, like, don't think too hard about domains for fresh projects. I feel like my my little story behind this is that, like, I ended up just putting a dash in CSS tricks because it's like, whatever, you know? Like, I don't... like. This thing doesn't even exist yet. Like, I think that that's kind of fine. Like, I feel like just get the domain that you feel is like pretty good and pretty close, and your chances of doing that on a .dot tech domain is a lot higher. And then, then put all your time and effort and thinking and work behind what you put on that website. That's what I care about. That's what you should do too. Check out go.tech slash codepen. There might be a slash shop dog, but I know slash codepen works. Go.tech slash codepen. Do you have, like, I don't know, I, there's some medium ground here, but as you're getting closer to, like, releasing Tito 2 or whatever you're calling it to the world, like, is there, any, so you've rewritten, did, how much did you rewrite in Vue ultimately? Like, all of it-ish? Or? Anything to do with managing an event is now Vue, Vue, Vue. <laughs> um, and we, we've kept around a couple of legacy paradigms, like, um, we're still we just kind of copied some of the forms over and we're still serializing them in JavaScript before sending to the server rather than like using view data attributes um, but we'll, we'll we will slowly get rid of that and then so that's the the, the desktop so the basically the UI was completely re-implemented so there's a lot view. less rails right like your views are you just don't have them anymore they're their view views, not we're de- ERB. we're deleting ERB files yeah it's weird it feels really weird to me but it feels right most of the time. And and then for the checkout app, it was just a ground up re-implementation. So the on the Rails app for the um, the main driver, the wonderful driver was that we we have this kind of stateful UI where View Router was just 
it made so much more sense for view router to control what components and what was showing and being shown sure. and hidden on the page. And that solved all the problems I talked about earlier. So you can have a search, and the search is independent of what's currently showing, and you yeah. mess around the search, you can click through things, the, the show pane changes, but um, the URL changes and the state is kept in the URL. It's just, it, it, and everything works, one, like magic, and two, without changing view or having to write anything custom, which was wonderful. Um, and then the checkout is is a completely embedded view app. And to me, that is like the that bit almost makes me more happy because the checkout was always intended to be a separate kind of conceptual app because we want to run this checkout experience on other people's websites. And it didn't really make sense for that to be a hosted server-side app because the only way to deliver that is inside an iframe. And to me, it brings me great joy to be able to say to people, use the same um, implementation because we, we were, we're basically future compatible with our, our Tito widget custom component. But now we can say upgrade to V2 of our JavaScript and you get an embedded app rather than an iframe experience. And for <laughs> event marketers, which is a lot of our customers, there's a lot of added benefit there because the checkout now runs natively on their page. So for things like attribution on Google Analytics or writing their own analytic hooks or just making sure that they have kind of full control of anything that happens on the page. Um, they get all that for and free. And all your state is Vuex too. Yeah. All the state is Vuex and then the one, the, the other great thing about it being a, a, an embedded app is that we will be able to do more or less pure white label without having to actually white label anything because we can use um, we can use hashtag URLs on third-party websites, and the, the hashtag URL controls the URL of what our widget shows. So, what we're going to be able to do is go back all the way back to that initial fun, uh, that initial FunConf experience, where the the whole experience stays in the site. And it looks like you've never left FunConf um, with URLs that work. So, we'll be able to send an email that is like whatever. If, if you if it's CodePenConf, um, you will get an email that says go to CodePenf Code. Or you'll get an email with your ticket, and the ticket will have a view order, and then you'll click on view order. You'll still be on codepenconf.com/hash/tito-ticket-id, and then the page will load, and then in an overlay, the view app will deliver the Tito experience within codepenconf.com. And to me, that is just as close to magic as I can imagine. And how do, that works because you're shipping like a view app to the page, right? Yeah, you're just yeah. You're putting a view app on the page. Yeah, wow. So that's cool. That like I guess. You know, I, I think a lot of the oh, we moved to a JS framework stories are all um, all about like developer ergonomics. But now, but this this is a customer thing now. Like you've you've enabled new customer territory. Um, so I, I think that's really cool, right? Like, so in the dashboard, in the dashboard, it is is mainly about allowing us to to build a UI that one conforms to what I talked about earlier, and two. Allows us to build more advanced UIs in terms of helping the customers, which is our customers. But yeah, the other piece, the checkout piece, is actually allowing our customers to to have an experience on their own website that feels much more rich and app like. That's yeah, that's very cool. Um, I guess so. Can I go back to the real? Because Rails plus View seems like my dreamland, and I want to live there one day. You just need one um, more piece to make it really dreamy, though, Dave. And it's GraphQL. GraphQL, what? baby. GraphQL. Oh man, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I mean, no, I'm just kidding. But no, go where like you're going to go. Record. Hey, uh, the I guess so. You have like, do you you still have like whatever slash 
uh, posts or tickets, let's say, because you do tickets, right? Um, and I assume that's like in a view folder. And then you just have an index RB or or is it, or do you just have the application index R ERB that just renders an empty body tag? Like what, what are you yeah. rendering it's, there? Yeah. Oh, um, this is where we need a, a screencast. Um, so yeah, I, I, I went we... full on Rails inspired when I was designing the view architecture. View doesn't have a like a, a folder structure that it sort of enforces. So uh, Rails, I, I mean, I assume you saw that Rails is now shipping Webpack by default. Yeah, yeah, which really yeah, helped us a lot. Which Webpacker, yeah, but it is it is Webpack, <laughs> and Webpacker provides a view um, getting started. Um, setup. So going from there, but what what I did was I just basically created uh, a components folder, and I structured that exactly as Rails would structure its views folder. Um, okay, so like components slash tickets. Yeah, but it, if you're in ticket. Rails and you're doing the RESTful Rails, you'd have tickets index HTML herb show index or show HTML herb edit HTML herb mm-hmm. and form. So I just did exactly the same with view. So if you go to the the tickets components folder in our repo, you'll see edit.view, delete.view, form.view, new. And if you click into new, um, the pattern in Rails is to just load a form with it initialized for new records. That's exactly what we've done here. So we've created a little mix-in for new items, and then you import the tickets form, and that becomes a component. And the tickets form is basically the only thing that is inside the new. And the new and the edit share the same form mix-in. Exactly. Yeah. And then we've got. Oh. Yeah. It is. It's really, really good. It's such a joy to use. Um, and then the the most wonderful thing for me about Vue is that. Once you kind of once I got it, I realized I'm in JavaScript world here, so I can anything can be dynamic instantly, and that to me was amazing because one of the things that we've we'd, I was doing so often with forms for Tito was showing and hiding elements, um, and with with I think I was using Twitter Bootstrap and jQuery, jQuery well obviously jQuery to just like to put the show element inside a tab, and we were kind of switching between tabs to show and hide, but in Vue it's just literally. Displayed true or false, and things actually come out of the DOM or come back into the DOM, um, and you can also optionally simply show or hide elements as well. But more that like now that it sort of looks and feels like standard, standard simplicity of the Rails templates that I had before. But at any point, I can just make something dynamic. That was just like it. Just there's just a great comfort knowing that. Um, and then seeing it in action for like a very simple, as I was saying before, the tax calculator is what comes to mind. Like you, you type in a ticket, and then you say, "I want to do twenty three percent tax," and it shows you a preview of what people are going to see. It's just that's just how UIs should be. When I felt like like in Rails or or any application, right? Like you have, let's say, a follow button or a favorite button, and it needs to you know send a request and turn green or check mark when it's mm-hmm, finished, right? Mm-hmm. Or maybe you trick it and you. Do the check mark and then you send the request. And <laughs> Call that a, a GraphQL like, mutation with an optimistic response over here. But. <laughs> optimistic, <laughs> hey, um, <laughs> like, like you do. You can code that right in Rails, like in ERBs and and jQuery and TurboLinks or whatever. You can you can code that about once. Yeah, and but you code it three or four times just for a button or a toggle or anything. You're just like, I hate this. Mm. This is not a system at all. Mm. Like, I, I this is just. I'm just like. Yeah, I'm 
chucking, I have to like modify my controller to send back a JSON response just for like a favorite thing, you know? And so like, I think you like get, you get pretty like deep, like, like it's a lot of work to make it happen, but that's, that's what's pushing me to something like view or something with rails is just like, yeah, it just happens. And I've literally brought up my implementation of action button (laughs) and the, it's what you described. The action button is it's a button element that has a font awesome spinner icon inside it. And when you click it, it's it ships off to whatever action you've sent it. It displays the spinner and it stops the spinner once it's done what you've asked it. And I've got I've sprinkled that all over this view app. And it's it's amazing because then what it does is it you can feed that action back into whatever view component you're using. And let's say that's something that updates the Vuex state. So the action button doesn't know anything about the state at all. It just does this. It just does the spinner, and it ships off the request. When the request comes back, the, the component that you're in updates the state, and then the whole template updates. And it's just it 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 it's as perfect as I can imagine that kind of interaction or building that kind of interaction. I like that. I also like the you know like suspense is coming to React, which is actually pretty rad. I wonder what the view story. Because anytime you think of spinners and JavaScript components like this, I think of that. I feel like I've seen talks that are like, hey, you know, like, you can get a little heavy with the spinner thing. I don't know hmm. if they have Chase Bank in uh, <laughs> in Ireland or not, but it's a it's a great example over here where they've clearly built the whole. App. Ireland has every company. <laughs> Because they all offshore their taxes. Yeah, so in, in, yeah. we have a lot of banks, but they're not necessarily all uh, consumer banks. So we, we probably mm. do. We well, have. I the, mean, this the homepage <laughs> for Chase.com has like ninety spinners on it, and you're like, whoa, whoa! I'm on a super fast internet connection here. I think you know, I I think there's more to it, but part of the heart behind suspense is like, can you just wait on showing the spinner if the response happens in like forty milliseconds anyway? Yes. You know? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, well, I've, we have. I've, I've done that a couple of times. Absolutely. So, Paul, can in let's say let's look five years from now. You just did a big rewrite. Sounds. I mean, again, I'm like Dreamland Rails view, um, or but like in five years, what does your app look like? Do you think it's like all view with like a you know lambda backend kind of thing, or is it web components or or what? And where, where do you think it goes in five years? That's a really good question. Based on the previous five years, it's going to be exactly the same as it was as it is today. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's a really good question. I mean, the, ne- the next thing for us is to, is to decide how ambitious we want to take the ability to scale Tito. And like the the example I have in my mind is like, could we could we handle the kind of event? Like a giant popular conference that needs to sell a hundred thousand seats to twenty million people who want it in five minutes, and that would obviously influence our architecture choices immensely. Um, but the, the the other interesting question around the the idea of lambdas is that lambdas to me are not necessarily interesting as a technology themselves. They are interesting in the ability to build those kind of massively scalable systems, but also while whilst keeping the in the app architecture in your head, like that's the nice thing about Rails is that you can go to your Rails app and you can just have a quick look around and then you can instantly understand how it all fits together. And so, I, I don't think I would easily sacrifice that. So for me, with the with the idea of a large app with lots of dependencies built with 
whether it's serverless functions or a different stack, to me it feels like it would have to be really easy to conceptualize. Um, so I'm keeping a very close eye on everything Netlify is doing because they're definitely, I think, leading in what they're saying, what what they're proposing to do, which is developer experience. And um, I think companies that value developer experience are really attractive to I. To me, at least, but to the I guess to the kinds of folks who appreciate Ruby on Rails and all of the values that are in the Rails manifesto, which is like being human friendly and coding for joy and be, uh, code being aesthetically pleasing. So, um, if we're going to go a little bit abstract, I would like to move toward a case where our app is, to use a little bit of a design cliche, but it is as. Um, you could appreciate the user experience on the front end, but if you looked at the code, you could really appreciate how it's sure. all put together. And at the moment, we're not there. It's there is a, there are areas that are a bit of a mess. But whilst I was doing that rearchitecture, I was always really mindful of like, I want this code to be beautiful. I want people to come and look at it and say, "Oh, that's nice." And it's based <laughs> on your reaction of just how I described one of the pieces today. I sort of feel like we are getting there. So that was really nice to hear. Yeah, does I guess does your team like are they like this is good or is or, or I guess maybe you don't want to speak for them <laughs> too much, but like or is everyone just exhausted? Like this is the longest rewrite ride of my life. Like I'm I'm gonna no. just cry in a puddle. <laughs> no, I, I mean we've we've abstracted a few bits of the rewrite out. Like we shipped a a, a single sign on system. Um, that was abstracted out of the rewrite, and we shipped that pretty early. And there's been we've been able to iterate tons of features on that, both kind of back end features and customer facing features. We did a, we did a rerun of of our billing engine. And we've been able to iterate on that as well. So having rewritten a lot of stuff, uh, it doesn't mean we haven't shipped everything. Um, some of it is is really fun to work on, and I think that that's what folks appreciate. I think everyone is quite jaded that we've had a lot of stuff like in development for so long, um, but it always feels like there's the light isn't too far away, which is, I guess, a good motivator. And it always feels like any delays that we introduce are, it, we we take a collective decision, and it's all in the spirit of trying to get it like as right as possible before we do ship. That's probably smart. I, I mean, my tendency is just kicking crap out the door. I'm like kick, 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 and it's nice to be have people rein rein you in on that. You know, I feel, I feel like there needs to be a balance. There needs to be somebody that just pushes super hard on getting stuff out the door, and some people being like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa!" You know, this needs to be better tested. It needs to be better QA'd. It need, we need to rearchitect things to make this more scrutable. You know, I don't know. It's like you need a good cop, bad cop thing. Yeah, the, the, check back and see how it it works out in the future. But we've made the decision this week to ship half of the rewrite to a subdirectory. Nice. <laughs> All right. Almost there. <laughs> Halfway there. All right. Well, I think that's a good place to stop. Uh, thank you, Paul. This has been uh, very cool and, and cathartic for me uh, to get a look into how like cool products get made. So I appreciate that. What a pleasure. And, um, thank you so much. For I guess for those who aren't following you and giving you money, how can they do that? I'm at Paul CA on Twitter. Um, and... Tito is at use Tito or ti.to on the web. Awesome. 
Well, thank you so much. And thank you, dear listener, for downloading this in your podcast or choice. Be sure to start our favorite up. That's how people find out about the show. Follow us on Twitter at Shop Talk Show for tens of tweets a month. And if you hate your job, head over to shoptalkshow.com slash jobs and get a brand new one because people want to hire people like you. And Chris, do you have anything else you'd like to say? Shoptalkshow.com. <laughs>